history, and we're in the section of of salvation in light of its Old Testament referent uh, the the Exodus, and we've talked about the story, we've talked about the meal, uh, and we've now talked about the we're talking about the song that uh, the song of Moses from Exodus 15 and and that is uh, again I'm, I'm thinking about how God uses music to write things on the hearts of his people and to make memories uh, and so you know I, I think about how God used Psalm 119 in Hebrew children's minds to teach them their their ABCs uh, and that they would memorize uh, that alphabetical song, the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, and like our kids learn A is for Apple. And so, uh, but they would learn, they would learn the, their alphabet in light of uh, of its meaning and assistance in helping them to read the word of God, that, uh, that there's a reason that you learn to read. And the reason you learn to read is to read God's word. Uh, and, and so you can take it in your heart and be guided by it in your life. And so it is, uh, it is a, a long song praising, uh, praising not only the God of the word, but a God who is willing to speak in ways that children and adults can, can comprehend and understand and interact. Uh, and that, that it is this, this sense that Torah is, is the way of things that what, what God says is wisdom. It's how the world is supposed to work. And so when we go against that, we introduce chaos into our lives. Well, the same thing when we think about salvation and the song of Moses is that it's a song about the God who not only is the creator, but the rescuer. And that God has chosen to intervene in the midst of darkness and oppression and evil and to set things right in in like a, an enclave or an outpost and that from that outpost will radiate out light and glory and ultimately shalom that uh, that that's the story of the bible uh that's certainly the story of israel and uh i suggest to you that it's also the story of of creation in Genesis is that he creates an enclave of Oops. oh I, I got a call so uh, so anyway that's uh, that is what uh, I think we're we're reading about here is this song is intended to teach the generations one to the next about who God is and how special Israel is to him and what in fact he has done for them slash us. You know, we know who we are in light of the story. Uh, we know who we are in light of the meal. We know who we are in light of the song. And so, so that's kind of where, where things are. And we're at 178 uh, talking about the mystery here. So, but how, well, are you okay to read lucky? I think so. If I can, I'll turn it over. Let's go back one paragraph to the bottom of 177. <clears throat> Salvation is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Salvation is a work of God that we cannot approximate or rival or reproduce. 
Salvation is of God, and so the experience and response to salvation also has to do with God. We are certainly involved. The song begins with a grammatical flurry of first-person verbs and first-person pronouns. Three first-person verbs and five first-person pronouns. This is no cool, objective, laboratory dissection of a theological proposition. We are head over heels in on this. But we don't manage it. We don't direct it. What we do is worship. We, quote, sing to the Lord the song of salvation. The song doesn't explain. The song witnesses. As Moses and the Israelites sing the song, they witness. In that worshiping witness, they participate in the mystery, and so do we. I think I want to want to pause one more time too. I had a I had the opportunity to to kind of MC and preach the virtual memorial service for Sue McLean uh, this past week, and and Sue was an absolutely unique person. She was, if she wasn't the most positive person I've ever known, she was close. Uh, she, I, I thought that she was, when I first met her, that she was like a child. There was a sense of playfulness and and sort of a, a juvenileness to her that she could enter into the world of children and children responded to her uh, in, a, in a tender, sweet way. <clears throat> I served with her twice, I think, on session. I never saw her frustrated. I never saw her upset. I don't know that I ever saw her with any hint of anger or irritation even. It was just amazing. I would get cranky. Uh, I would get peevish. I would think, my goodness, can't we just get on with this, you know? And, and she could remain patient and engaged and sweet and, and just cheerful, you know? I mean, more than just engaged and, and persistent, she was just cheerful, sunny. Catherine Hilliard? Oh, more than that. <laughs> Even more, but something like that. And, and it was just, and, and there, was, there was a childlikeness to it that at first I couldn't believe was genuine, but I never saw an iota of change in her. She was always the same. She was always positive, but what? I mean, you know, just she was happy all the time. And, and I was like, you know, even as she went through Howard's illness, she was, she was the same. I was like, wow, how do you do that? Because uh, I would get, I, I'm just not like that. You know, right. and, and the contrast is so evident to me. Well, when I think about when I think about songs, they they chose as a prelude. They had the choir from uh, her daughter's church in San Francisco sing "The Strife Is O'er." Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> that was the prelude and the postlude. So, beginning and ending with "The Strife Is O'er." And, and again, a memorial service is intended to be an Easter service. It's, it's the witness to the resurrection. That's the point of the service. And so, you know, it's more than a celebration of the life that was lived. It's a celebration of the promise of eternal life. And that the promise of what God did for Jesus, he will do for Sue. And, and I, but I watched all of the testimonies that they had already recorded 
and and I was, but when it was time to stand up, the strife is o'er was sung at my grandmother's memorial service, was sung at my father's memorial service, was sung at my mother's memorial service, and in all likelihood, if anybody is around that knows me, it'll be sung at mine. And uh, and it was. I had to sit back down and pause for a minute just to compose myself because it was so powerful to me and it took me all of those places all at the same time is that is that music is transportive it can take you to places and memories that that connect and impact you in ways that often are surprising uh you know, it's not, it's not irrational, but it is supra-rational. It is beyond reason. So you know what's happening to you, but it's sort of beyond your ability to control it. And so, and I think these songs that we learn to sing at one point in our life and become kind of irretrievably linked with events are that God intends music to have that kind of power on us. Uh, and so the song of Moses is such a song is that it tells you, tells you more than what happened one day in Egypt. It tells you who God is. It tells you who you are. It tells you that what God did long ago and far away, he did for you. That you're part of that story. And so when you hear the song of Moses, it's supposed to be an increasingly defining kind of a story to you, is that you more and more as you live your life, see yourself as connected and part of this, this story of salvation. So, so here we go. However mysterious that is, irreducible to reason or pragmatic reckoning. It is impossible not to notice, not to notice the impact of the act of salvation on the way we live our lives. <clears throat> the salvation song redefines history. Apart from what is expressed and sung in the Song of Moses, history is sin defined. But the wonder at the sea, that is the Red Sea, draws us into an understanding and participation in history that is salvation defined. The wonder at the sea and the worshiping response in the Song of Moses proclaims and celebrates a salvation defined history by those who participate in the history. History considered extra-biblically deals with sin and the ramifications of sin. History as revelation deals with salvation and the ramifications of salvation. So, I think that's an interesting point. There, it sure is. <laughs> You know, the biblically deals with sin and ramifications of sin. All of history deals with sin and its ramifications. That's right. In our world, we are impacted irrevocably. No, not irrevocably. Irreconcilably saved for Christ. Irreconcilably saved for Christ to, to sin and and it's uh it's ramifications and and all wars and all and everything else is about that that's right <laughs> that's right so history apart from the bible is all about <laughs> sin and its effects yeah. history in the bible as revelation as un, as revealing what god is doing is all about salvation and the ramifications of salvation so again this is this is very much what i'm trying to write about in my ponderings on creation is that creation and new creation is all about salvation as the god of creation seeks to set right 
what is not right. And so that's the revealing. That shows us who God is. And it also tells us who we are as the objects of his covenant love and the objects of his intervention in history to bring about rectification and rescue. Well, not, not only um, is sin, um, not only is it our wars and dissension a result of sin, but even COVID-19 is a, is a result of sin. It's absolutely, the world is out of joint. The world is in decay because of sin. That's right. That's right. So if you ever intend to publish that little thing you're writing, I'll make a recommendation for you, okay? <laughs> from a published author. <laughs> no, from a publisher of a published author. Oh, there you go. The, the wonder at the sea turns our sin-defined understanding of history on its head. Something happened under the leadership of Moses that day at the Red Sea that forever marked Israel's understanding on the way the world worked. The wonder at the sea is taken up into an act of worship. Let me pause there at the colon. That, Angelo, is what your book is. Something happened to you that changed the way you saw the world. And you have borne witness to that transformation and that change. The way that you got new eyes, the way that you got a different perspective on the world uh, that put things together from a completely different vantage. That's the witness that you bear. And, and I made him write more about that, too. Good for you. <laughs> There's power in the story. You know, you also you use the word complete, you know. That is the only complete story. Yeah. There are, there are other partial stories. That's right. There are other things we can learn uh, and experience which help us to understand, but they're only partial. That's right. This is the only universal story. That's right. That's exactly right. So the wonder of the sea is taken up into <clears throat> worship, in the remembering that is worship. The act of salvation is established in Israel's life as the fulcrum of history. This fulcrum provides the place of leverage by which everything that happens in their lives and the lives of the nations is understood and dealt with as an aspect of salvation. In a salvation-defined history, sin is not diminished. If anything, we are even more aware of it. But it is no longer definitive. Salvation is definitive. Salvation provides the terms that set the limits, establish the boundaries, inform the conditions in which wars are fought, gardens planted, Sarah, marriages arranged, goods and services bought and sold, elections conducted, funerals held, football games played, and meals cooked. These limits are grand, exceeding by far what we are used to. Only worship can approximate such conditions. Given the what's, what's that? Where do you get that last sentence? Well, Holy worship. I think what he's trying to say is that is that only worship is big enough to take in this, this expansive way of seeing mm -hmm. history and yes. life itself is that 
is that it drives up knowing that that what history is really about is not sin and its ramifications, but salvation and its ramifications. Then we, once we understand that, we see everything from a different angle. Yeah, Which, I guess it's this word worship. I mean, if he had said only salvation, okay. Yeah, yeah. I would have gotten it, I think, but only worship is strange. Well, I, I think I think basically what he's saying is if you see God as Savior, and not just personal Savior, but Savior in history. Remember this, Christ plays in history as our chapter, is that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and the Lord of history who acts in space and time, and that what he does in space and time, way in the past, has everything to do with what he's doing in space and time today. That you and I are reading this book by Eugene Peterson that God inspired Peterson to write and that some good publisher wrote down and produced and that we're sitting here in Northern Palm Beach County reading it about acts that took place 3,500 years ago, uh, is, I mean, that's an impossible story. And that we think that what God did for this obscure bunch of slaves has everything to do with who we are. That our story is that story, is, is something that drives you to worship the God who is the author of the story. The old story and the new story. So I think that's only worship can approximate such conditions. So given the onslaught of sin evidence that hits us in the face every day, salvation-defined history is hard to believe. This is what drives atheists. With centuries of Egyptian oppression behind them and still more centuries of Canaanite enmity ahead of them, it was hard for Israel to believe. But it is also quite clear that Israel, against all the evidence that history threw at them, actually did believe. They didn't always live what they believed, but they certainly believed it. They told the story, ate the supper, and sang the song that continuously sets forth history as salvation defined and not sin defined. They also, although admittedly in jerky stop and go fashion, express their belief in salvation in lives of prayer and obedience, social structures of justice and compassion, and a moral life that honored their core identity male and female, as the image of God. A sin-defined history understands history as primarily the experience of what men and women, some better and some worse than us, do. But the, both the statistics and stories are appalling. Cruelty, hurt, injuries, betrayal, unfaithfulness, torture, killing, rape, abuse, injustice. There are bright spots, to be sure, but even the bright spots are hopelessly compromised by bad faith, corrupt motives, conscienceless exploitation, ignorant good intentions. It is impossible to find a single passage in history that displays humankind as sheer goodness, pure beauty, or flawless truth. Some historians take particular delight in picking up much admired and celebrated, quote, great men and women, and making a public exhibit of their dark sides, the sins and crimes that they managed to conceal, preening on famous pedestal. But it doesn't, a historian of genius to do it. The evidence, though sometimes suppressed, 
is abundant. Any of us can play that game. And, you know, and I think sort of the, the iconoclastic approach to destroying American history and uh, statues and all of those kind of things because these are flawed human beings. Like this is some brand new insight. Right. Is, is, is amazing and an attempt to, uh, to interpose a new history that is just as corrupt with people that are at least as flawed. Uh, I think the wonder of human history is, is often that with corrupt and sinful human beings, that anything good happens ever. So, you know, as, as I'm reading this um, paragraph, I'm thinking I've always had an awareness as far back as I can go that these things that are so terrible in our world is because of sin and man's yes. rebellion against God. It's really, I mean, it occurred to me in different levels, but it's really occurring to me in a, I don't know, in a strange way. How in the world does an atheist make sense of that? How do they explain why that is? Yes. It makes no sense. Why are, why is it so corrupted? Why is the world so terrible in so many areas of life? How do you make sense of that? Yeah. How did you make sense of that? Angelo. Yeah, what well, I, I can make sense of that. I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> I, I guess, I think it's, it's, I, I, I play this because of something that you said once, Lucky, and I'm not sure I'm saying it right, is that without God, you got you. Without God, what do I got? You know, I got me. That's what I got. I'm God, okay? I, I mean, people used to talk about pluralism. I mean, I, I used to laugh at that, you know? So what is good and what is bad? Well... Uh, it's, it's what's good for, for the most. That's what's good. And if it's not good for the most, it's bad. And whose and who's definition and whose mind? Well, no, I, I know that. But, why, no, no. but how do they explain the bad? Why does the bad happen? Why does bad happen? Because what's good for me, because, because, it's a conflict of gods. It, it's, it's the war of the world. A conflict of gods. I'm God, you're God, you're God, you're God. And we all think that what we, we have and what we do is the right thing. And so and so the world explodes because of of a conflict of gods. That's how an atheist would explain bad? I Why there's bad? The, 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 yeah, I think. Maybe not. Now that I think about it. I don't, think I, I don't know that I understood. I don't know that I understood that until I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know. It's really, it really is like a new, um, it's a, a new level of, of, of the, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, how do you explain why these things are happening in the world if you don't believe in, in a God and good and evil? If you don't have that in your mindset, then how do you explain the fact that people are torturing, torturing, killing, raping and these injustices well, in the world. Well, well, I mean, you know what I, I would have asked you? How do you explain a God that allows that? Talk to me about that one. Don't ask me. You tell me how do you explain a God that allows for torturing and raping and injustice, murder for no particular reason, slaughter of thousands and thousands in the course of history, thousands for reasons which can't be imagined. I, I read those books on the Mongols. I can't understand it. They, they killed everybody. And they had no reason. They didn't want the land. They didn't want the gold. They didn't want the cities. They didn't want anything. They just, that's what they did. They liked it. Shirley is still with us. She just had to change positions. Okay. Change positions? Yeah. She left Paris. (laughs) (laughs) She had to fly back. Yeah, I didn't give you a good explanation. I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll think about it. I, I think my explanation really is an explanation of a um, a reformed atheist, frankly. Like yes. you get you get what I'm saying? Yes. 
And I mean, my realization that everybody pretends for God and that that's why think bad happened is really kind of one of a reformed atheist. <laughs> you don't think about yourself as God and other people as God if you're an atheist. That's right. That's right. No, but you what you wonder about is why people don't do it the right way. Why people don't do it your way. Mm -hmm. If they just did it your way, the world would be better. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't understand that with Penny. It's like, you know, why don't you just do it my way? We'll both be happy. She's not in the room, is she? No. <laughs> You're a chicken. <laughs> I'm completely unsupervised at this moment. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh man. Yes, yes. Yeah, you talk big now. <laughs> well, bottom of 179. By contrast, so again, he's contrasting sin-defined history versus salvation-defined history. By contrast, a salvation-defined history accepts all the sin evidence but penetratingly discerns the sovereignty of God and the work of salvation, quote, in, through, and under all of it. So... So, Angelo, that is, I think that is the faith response, is that God is somehow in it, around it, under it, through it, working out his rescue. <clears throat> St. John puts Israel's salvation perspective in an epigram, quote, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. The, quote, he who is in the world is thoughtlessly and ignorantly presumed to be definitive for history. John, compressing the biblical salvation work into a phrase, says, quote, not so. He who is in you is greater, end quote. We say, greater. Are you sure? Can this be true? Is this evangelical bluff? Highest <laughs> combat. <clears throat> Maybe this is, quote, spiritually true, but certainly not historically true. But Israel never spiritualized salvation. The Song of Moses is emphatically historical. Something actually took place, something actually happened. And what happened continues to happen. That's what changes an atheist to make them a reformed atheist, is that something happened. Something happened that changed everything and opened them to the view that it is continually happening. So, so that's that's the change of perspective. The song is bracketed by verses 1 to 3 and 18, and then centered, verses 11 and 12, in affirmations regarding this God who saves. Between the brackets, 1 to 3 and verse 18, and around the center is all history. What happened at the sea, verses 4 to 10, and what will happen after the sea as they are led into their new land, verses 13 to 17. So I tell you what, let's stop here, and, and let me have somebody read Exodus 15, 1 to 18. I've got it. Good. Go for it. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismay now are the chiefs of Edom dis dismayed Trum trembling seizes the, uh, the, the this is hard to read now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed trembling seizes the leaders of Moab all the inhabitants of Canaan is that it 
have melted away. Tears. Exodus 15. Exodus. I am. Exodus 15. Yep. Good, good. Okay. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O God, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Did it? That's till 18. That's through 18. starting 15 to 18. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, that's not it. You're talking about 15.1 rather than 15.18. 15. I read Exodus 15, verse 15. No, no. 15. Okay. 1 to 18. All right. There we go. So somebody else want to do it? <laughs> go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> or she's leaving. Well, FedEx guy is coming, but he'll he'll live. Uh, so one, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He's my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. <coughs> the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Stop right second. Eric, for a second. Yeah. This is the first bracket. Okay. One to three. So now we're going to find out what happened. Four to four to ten. Okay. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Four to eight. That, you want to stop at eight? No, keep, keep going. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to, their holy, to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. And then Joanne read from 15 on. Yes. So, so again, he talks about that things are bracketed uh, by 1 to 3 and in verse 18. And again, I think it is... Uh, it is so important for us is that this salvation experience frames everything that follows, including the gospels is that what God does for Israel, he does to establish a realm in which he rules in which he is exalted as King. And that from that, from that throne radiates out his shalom. He sets, he intervenes in history and sets things right that are not right. And so, you know, again, it's all about, it's all about God as he reigns as king. So again, what's the message that Jesus comes preaching? Repent. Why? The kingdom of the, God is at hand. Exactly. The, the kingdom or the reign of God is at hand. And so... God is intervening in history again in a second Exodus experience. And so one of the things that I really appreciated about Jared's sermon on the, uh, the walking on the water is that, is that he tied it with Psalm 77, uh, talking about 
how God reveals himself in making a way in the sea, uh, that as he comes as the rescuer, uh, where it seems that the sea is an adversary. In fact, he makes the sea the way of salvation. He, he takes he takes the place of wickedness and and the realm of wickedness and makes it his own, which is exactly what's going to happen at the cross, is that evil does its worst, and he uses that to overthrow the evil one, is that evil falls in the trap that they lay for the righteous. That's how just God is, is that he allows them to do themselves in. He gives them up to their own devices and then turns the tables on them. So they try to eliminate the Savior, and in trying to eliminate the Savior, he saves. You know, he saves by their hand. So, so again, you know, one of the chief elements of Jewish jurisprudence is that the punishment has to fit the crime. We call it lex talionis. Do you remember that, Angelo? No, I do not. Okay. It, uh, but again, you know, it's it's known as the the eye for eye principle. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Is that if you cost someone their eye, what what should it cost you? Your eye, but not both eyes. You know, is again one of the one of the principles of civil law is to try to make the person who was injured whole as much as you can in this post offense world. And you know, that's that's what personal injury law is supposed to be is to try to assess the damage that's been done and then see that the person who caused the damage pays for the damage they cause. And so, uh, you know, there's a whole, a whole industry based on that. So, so here, what God does is that God actually uses the rebellion of the evil one to overthrow the evil one by letting him fall into his own trap. So, again, the song is bracketed by verses 1 to 3 and 18. It is centered in verses 11 and 12 in affirmations regarding this God who saves. And between the brackets and the center and around the center is all history. What happened at the sea, verses 4 to 10, and what will happen after the sea as they are led into the new into their new land, verses 13 to 17. That's really what, what Joanne read us, is that the nations who will be their neighbors will witness what God has done as he establishes his kingdom before their faces and that they're powerless to stop it. Given our habit of using the word, quote, salvation almost exclusively in terms of the individualized soul, a spiritual condition that deals with our interiority, our, quote, relationship with God, this is significant. And Angelo, this is, I think, one of the things you most appreciated about N.T. Wright uh, is that he, he anchors the gospel in history and that what God's purpose is, is not just saving your soul so you can go to heaven, but that that is a means to the greater end of establishing in this world his shalom, his kingdom, where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And any definition of the gospel that doesn't take that larger purpose into effect is a distortion of the gospel. And that's uh, well, what's wrong with that distortion. It's only a piece of it, you would say, I think. Lucky, right? What's that? I don't think you would say it's a distortion. It's a piece of it. It's not, it's not the full, it's not the whole of it. 
Well, if, if, you, if you reduce it down to simply the gospel of personal rescue and salvation, I, yeah, okay, you call you, you've distorted it. Yeah. I, think, I think Lucky's got a fire in his butt because of something he watched the other day. But Lucky, yeah. you've got to admit, though, that calling the part about paganism, I, I don't understand that. No, I, I disagree with that too, but I think what he wants to, he wants to do, and Fleming Rutledge said it better than, than he did, is that the notion of, of God uh, of God having to be uh, of God having to be appeased, I think is what he wants to rebel against is that Again, he thinks that divides the Trinity, just like Fleming Rutledge did. And he's trying to avoid that, making God a God who has to be uh, appeased by the blood offering of his own son. Uh, is that what I think it's I think it is more correct to say that Jesus endures the very real consequences that sin introduces not because God is angry with him uh, when he should really be angry with us, but that what's in his let loose in the world is real. And that, and we can't just make a, a happy ending uh, and ignore the reality of the rebellion and its effects. Yeah, it, I, I think using that term is, is it's a huge mistake on his part, setting that aside. Yes. And I'm, I don't know if we want to continue the conversation because they don't know. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. About, I'm sorry. So, yeah. it, it was something that I, I showed, I, I referenced a, a video to Lucky the other day criticizing N.T. Wright for some of his ideas. Right. And, and that's why. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yes. That's why you have an, an impulsive response. So. So salvation does, of course, deal with the condition of the soul. Here you go, Angelo. But, quote, soul, remember, is a totalizing term. There is no soul apart from history with all of its economics and politics, science and geography, literature and arts. No soul apart from work and family, body and the neighborhood. The song expands the jurisdiction of salvation to cover everything that has happened and is happening and will happen. It is hardly a private affair between men and women and their God. Pharaoh's picked officers and the chiefs of Edom are also in the camps, the sea behind them and the land ahead of them. The quote, he who is in the world, unquote, appears in history under many aliases. The Antichrist, the serpent, the devil, the Satan, the tempter, Beelzebub, Rahab, Behemoth, Leviathan, the great dragon, the roaring lion, the enemy, the liar. These days, quote, he who is in the world, unquote, for the most part, works anonymously, but can be discerned in the much reported, quote, works of darkness. It is easy and common for this perception of evil's omnipresence and omnipotence to bully many into a kind of moral, spiritual apathy that, quote, nothing can be done disease, and some into outright unbelief. And far too many Christians, uninstructed in the biblical story, adapt to the mood of the age, failing, failing a convinced knowledge that, quote, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, unquote. That is, without a firmly historical grasp of salvation, many end up living timidly, scurrying like scared rabbits 
into religious holes where they maintain their faith in reduced dimension. Others overcompensate by living obnoxiously like barking dogs, voicing spiritual contempt for and superiority over history. If we are to so, live... I'm sorry. So, so, I mean, what, what this says, I guess, is what I think and probably what all of us think about what's going on in the world today. I mean, with so many things, uh, the pandemic being the, the topper, so to speak, yeah. is, that, is that God is in this, okay? Yes. God is, is, is caused or allowed this, the way I think. Yes. Has caused or allowed it, uh, and and somehow, and all of this trouble, and all of these disasters, and all of these hardships for people, he's working for the good of those who love him. I don't, I don't know how to how to reconcile that, but I believe it. That's right. Somehow, all this turmoil, all this junk that's going on uh, is, is, is of God. And in all of that, he's working for the good of those who love him. Exactly. That's what he says. He says in all things. And, and he guarantees that despite how things may look on any given day, that he will prevail. And the way that you know he will prevail is that he acted in the middle of history to have his son bear the consequence of sin and overthrow it and be vindicated through it by being raised from the dead, never to die again. And that's why it is said, if you don't believe in that. Yes. But how's Paul put it? If you don't believe in that, then then you've built your belief foundation on straw, right? I don't know how he says it, but yeah. No, in First Corinthians fifteen, he says, "Of all men, we are most to be pitied." You know, if you if you lose the resurrection, yeah. then of all men, you know, we're just believing fairy tales. Yeah, yeah. So he anchors in history a real event that is the ground on which we stand. Yeah. So, you know, again, he doesn't just tell you a story, but he acts in history to anchor it. And so whatever else may happen that calls that into question, the one thing that cannot be called into question is that Jesus died and rose again and promises to return and set things right. So if he prevails over sin and its consequence, we know at the end of the day, he will prevail. So, and, and, so that, and that Jesus didn't do it outside of history. I mean, he, he entered into the suffering exactly. so, that, so that in our suffering, we, we have someone who suffer, has suffered before us and so it's not like he doesn't understand our suffering. And that I think is a, is a huge, it's huge for me. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you, you disappeared, Sarah. I know I'm, I'm having to make my lunch. So I'm, I have my, I have a paper over my camera. <laughs> <laughs> I, I put Bob back into daycare this week and, and it starts at nine thirty now instead of seven o'clock in the morning. Yes. So, I, I'm I'm making my lunch because I'm going to uh, Jupiter Lighthouse with my babies and as soon as we're done. So oh nice! I had to start packing my lunch. Beautiful. Well, we are. I think we'll get to the end of this little section, but uh, so we are. If we are at the bottom of one eighty, if if we are to live fully and to the glory of God in history, which is to say in the circumstances of our homes and workplaces, in the happenings of our nation and world, we simply must have an adequate, which is to say a biblical grasp of the 
pivotal, ongoing salvation action of God in history. God incessantly, relentlessly, effectively saving, unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Salvation is comprehensive. Never mind that the saving is for the most part hidden and unreported. The huge definitive historical fact for Israel is that the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. What happened at the sea became Israel's earliest confession and a stock element in their worship. And the Song of Moses became their national anthem. It places their entire life as a people of God firmly in history. It doesn't offer an alternative, an alternate spiritual world. It does not reduce their life to quote mere history by glorifying Israel or Israel's leaders. This is a God sovereign world. And the primary work of this, of this God is salvation. This is who they are and where they live. This is how they came to be and what they are here for. What is true for Israel is true for us. A saved people immersed in salvation determined history in which we maintain a believing, participating involvement by worshiping the God of history. So, you know, I, I think, Angelo, your, your statement that God is at work in the midst of the mess is critical for us to understand, particularly on days of discouragement and disillusionment. That, uh, you know, that when it seems like evil is winning, when it seems like, like God is not sovereign, faith drives us back to, to the anchor of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. That, that we, know, we know the end of the story which ought to cause us not to lose heart, but to persevere in faith and faithfulness. <clears throat> uh, could, we, we have a little more time. Um, can, can we kind of extend this into a, a little theological uh, discussion that Sarah and I were having? Sure. So, so um, it's an extension of this, I think. It says, so, so God's primary work of this God is salvation. And he's not talking about personal salvation. He's not talking about mine or yours. He's talking about salvation of what? Salvation of what? Salvation of the kingdom? What does that mean, salvation of the kingdom? So um, I, I was talking to Sarah a couple of days ago, and... Um, I happen to mention to her that my belief, it's not, it's not a big deal belief, it's kind of like in my heart belief, that there are other living creatures in the cosmos. That, that it would be narrow and almost selfish to think that of all the planets, of all the stars, of all the, I mean, not just our Milky Way, but not, not Milky Way, our Milky Way, just... It would be selfish and narrow, this is how I come to it, to think that we are the only things that God created. So then how do I square that concept with Christ dying for the cosmos? Sarah says, yes, the cosmos. And does that mean all these other planets? All these other Earths, all these other stars, all these other, all these other whatever. Did Christ die for just His kingdom on this Earth? Us, our ancestors, 
those that will come after us, his kingdom on this earth, or did he die on this earth in real time, in a real place, in front of real people to save the cosmos? What can that mean? Anybody have any insight into that? <laughs> well, the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, so the cosmos is part of the heavens. And he's creating the heavens will be new, the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth. So whatever is out there is... is so he died for all of it. He died for these people who I think might be on this... These other planets and other galaxies... Uh, is that your point, Sarah? Yeah, the A and you have thousands upon thousands. Sorry, I'm talking to the other Sarah. I, I can't. I didn't hear. Okay, I was saying that you have the angels, thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They're somewhere, you know. So they're part of the. They're part of heaven, or somewhere in the cosmos. So Sarah, yeah, that's all. So where do you get ten thousands upon ten thousands? Uh, uh, Revelation five. I'm studying it with a friend. That's why today. That's why I don't normally have it at the tip of my tongue. But I can almost give the verse it's seven or eight or nine or something. Well, if he made it all, wouldn't he have died for it all? Just he died point. in our history, in our time. You know, it's it's not like uh, some of the myths where you have these big gods of the of the universe and they do things outside of you. Okay. This is something that happened here, and and in, in the context of the of the cosmos, it's a narrow thing for it to have happened here. It's a small thing in the context of the cosmos. Yet, yet we say that this is what both Sarah and 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 uh, both Sarah say that he died for the cosmos, not for our world, for the cosmos. Um, I can't, I'm trying to find it right now. I'm like either Colossians or Ephesians that actually use the term cosmos in in the in this understanding of Christ dying, creating and dying for the cosmos, not just the cosmos. How do we how do we understand that? How, how do we understand what we just read about um, about the Exodus being a a circumstance of salvation, a circumstance of salvation for the cosmos, or for humanity, or it blows my mind. I must say, <laughs> Vicky, I'm thinking it's blowing yours too. I don't. <laughs> it is, but I, you know, I'm a pretty simple soul, and I'm thinking if he he made it all, it's got to be that he's saving it for all, everything. Yeah. Right. I mean. Why? Yeah. He made it. He can save it. Yeah, I guess for me, it's it's a two part thing. Is it is it true what 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 Sarah's saying? It is the cosmos that he died for. Okay, number one. Okay. Well, I mean, you said some good things. I'm going to find it in my Bible. Sarah, without the H, you 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 uh, said something that's convincing too. Um, so if that's a yes, then there's the 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 next bigger thing. Almost, uh, you know, what's that all about? It's hard for me to rest. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I had a friend yesterday say to me, you know, I really don't want to think about that. You know, I am I am convinced and I know what I know and I believe what I believe and I'm happy in it. And I just don't want to think about that kind of stuff. <laughs> this is good. That's a good thing, you know, but that ain't me. <laughs> I don't even think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, I, the, this, the phrase, and I've been meaning to look this up because it's been coming to me lately, about how the Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see if they believed what was to be true. And I think that is so important um, for us to continually be searching the scriptures to find out if what we're being taught is true. Yes. And, and I, you know, I think about you, Lucky, and how you've had this little class for that I've participated in, I think now for over 15 years, which seems crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got to be because Bob's 
going, we're almost into seven years with Bob's injury, and I know I was coming oh, well. for Bob's injury. Well, so, I've, been, I've been retired for 14 years, and I've been coming to this class for probably, I would say, at least 12, and you were there already. Sarah. Yeah, for many years before you, so it could be beyond 15 years. Anyways, the point is, is that this is what we're doing in this class. We're searching the scriptures to see what we believe is true, and I, I don't know about you. I know all of you guys feel the same way, but it strengthens your faith. Yes. So to not explore and to dig deeper and to question what you're what you've been taught, it's it's sad um, to not to not um, challenge those things. But I'm trying to find Lucky. Do you know where the word? It's either Colossians or Ephesians um, in the first one, two, or three chapters where the word cosmos is actually used in the, in the original language. Well, I know. I know it's used in Romans 4.13 when it talks about Abraham becoming the heir of the cosmos. It's a translated world. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can Google it. Lucky, do you have any insights on... Uh, just one second. Let me see if I can... This is oh, a little over time now. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. It, no, I, I agree with you.